Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with the Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This week, we're reading Susie the Flower Girl, A Romance of the War, by Ethel Edwards. This story was first published in January 1915, and is read for us today by Marion from the Features Team. Over to Marion. A trembling hand, a quick-drawn breath, expresses much or more than the most eloquent language. And when the two were parting at the entrance to the court where Susie lived, Joe realised that his opportunity had come. Susie, he said, I love you. Don't you think you'd better hang on to me altogether? What's to hinder us two being married? Oh, Joe, she leaned against the wall, her breath coming in quick, short gasps. How can we? What about little Herbert? What's the hindrance there? My trade will keep the three of us. Don't you care about being married to me? It isn't that, Joe. I love you, indeed I do. But it doesn't seem fair to you. There's little Herbert to keep. No, I can't marry you, she repeated, but her red mouth drooped and Joe thought how delicious and tempting her lips looked. The colour flowed into her cheeks, her blue eyes were startled and she smoothed the skirt of her best frock, a well-worn blue serge, with a hand that trembled a little. I never saw such a girl, and his arm pressed her closer to him. Say you will, Susie. Oh, Joe. But her eyes fell before his and he kissed away further protests. I'll have to go, Joe, she whispered at last, drawing herself from his close embrace. And Joe, are you going to the mission tomorrow? Are you studying the books Mrs Brown gave you? Me? Studying? Joe asked helplessly. The idea was staggering. You ought to. I'm studying, she said earnestly. Mrs Brown says orphans ought to make the most of their opportunities. You see, somehow or other, they always get a bad start unless they're rich, so they've got to make up for lost time. Just the way it was with you and me, you know. Yes, I know, said Joe, and I'll see you tomorrow. And Susie, you'll remember now you are promised to me. Yes, Joe, dear, and she kissed him of her own accord. And Joe, cap in hand, wistfully watched her dainty figure with her modish little hat with its blue cornflowers that almost matched her eyes as she tripped down the court. She called out greetings to the groups of slatternly women and ill-favoured men at alley corners as she passed, and received their nods of recognition, some stopping their muttered conversation to speak to her, for all had a good word to say for Susie. She stopped at the end house of the court and let herself in. A figure seated by the window stirred. That you, Susie? Yes, Herbert, dear, she answered. Throwing her hat on the bed and taking the outstretched hand, she sat down beside him. The boy's pinched face with its closed, sightless eyes was turned up to her, and she smiled dreamily as she stroked his hair. She made a sweet picture sitting there, her worn serge with its spotless lawn frills at the wrists and open throat showing off her pretty pale complexion and her fair curly hair bound in soft waves round her graceful head. Only a flower girl, yet she looked as fair and sweet as the roses she sold in the streets. Susie, will you and Joe ever get spliced? Spliced? Oh, Herbert, what a word to use. But, and she laughed softly, he asked me tonight. His hand clutched hers nervously. What is it, Herbert? She asked anxiously. Susie, and his voice broke. When you marry Joe, you won't leave me, will you? Leave you? Oh, Herbert. And she wound her arms round his small figure. You know you'll always go with Susie wherever she goes. He sighed a great sigh of relief. I knew it, Susie. But I just wanted to hear you say it. She laughed happily. You know I'll always love you most, but guess what I've brought for your supper? Whelks, he asked eagerly. No, you're always after whelks. Susie, not a custard pie? Yes. She drew forth from its paper bag a round of rather greasy-looking pastry. I had a stroke of luck today. A lady gave me a shilling for a bunch, so I got you one. His little face was beaming when he'd finished. 
Custard pie is the best thing out, Susie, he said, as she helped him to undress. Every morning, Susie began her duties early. Away she went to the market for the perishable blooms that often were proffered and vainly hawked throughout the day. Lately, business has been fairly brisk, but for days, Susie has been uneasy. With a quick intuition of the street, she read the shadow of impending war on the newsboy's bills. And that night, like a thunderclap burst, the proclamation that war was declared between Britain and Germany. Newsboys raked their harvests as they dashed past, dispersing specials. But flower girls such as Susie returned home with aching hearts and feet, and spirits as crushed and drooping as their unsaleable wares. Susie was beginning to feel a pinch. Flowers weren't selling, and she and Herbert were having to economise even more than before. Susie hadn't seen Joe for a day or two. He was a packer in a postcard factory, and as she knew theirs was almost entirely a continental trade, she was frightened. Already there were rumours of workers being suspended indefinitely. The country was calling. Kitchener had issued the challenge. Your king and country need you, met Susie at every hoarding, and her heart sank. What would she do if Joe had to go? Susie, whispered Herbert's voice from the bed one morning as she prepared to leave. How many days is it since we had a custard pie? I don't know, Herbert. Last week, wasn't it? She remembered with sudden pain that she hadn't seen Joe since then. Another awful thought assailed her. The rent hadn't been paid for a week, and everybody knew what a brute douse it was. He wouldn't hesitate to fling a household out into the night in the street and gloat over their misery. She dashed the tears from her eyes. For the first time in her 17 years' experience of poverty and degradation, she felt really frightened. Her mother's death the year before had made everything so much harder for Susie. Her father had been killed some years before in a street accident, but he had been nothing but a drunken brute who had lived solely to break up that home which it had been a mother's life's work to keep up. So no wonder the responsibility of looking after her six-year-old blind little brother and keeping the home together weighed pretty heavily on her at times. I won't be long being back, Herbert, she said, quite cheerfully, opening the door. Right you are, Susie, he called, and she slipped out into the yard and hurried past the groups of ragged men and women who stood eagerly discussing the latest war news. All day, Susie hawked her wares. Little nosegays tastefully bunched red, white and blue, but there was little or no sale. The hurrying crowds had other things in the buying of flowers to think of, and Susie's heart sank within her as she counted her meagre returns. She gave it up late in the afternoon when a chilling rain began to fall and turned her steps homewards. She felt utterly hopeless at the thought of the fireless home in the empty cupboard, and the thought of brave little Herbert feeling the cravings of hunger agonised the sister mother, now powerless to satisfy it. She dragged her way down the court. Suddenly, her heart nearly stood still with horror. There was a crowd around her door, amongst them Dowsett, the broker's man. Racing forward, she flung herself at him as he was beginning unceremoniously to pile the sticks on the barrow at the door. Oh, Mr. Dowsett, Mr. Dowsett, you aren't going to take our sticks. You won't be so cruel. You wouldn't send out little Herbert and me with nowhere to lay our heads. Oh dear, what shall I do? What shall I do? And she flung her arms around poor little Herbert, who had risen at the sound of her voice from the step where he had been dumped by the broker's man. Stow it, growled Dowsett. If you can't pay, out you must go. There's only one week going, and with a bit of luck, Covent Garden in the morning, I might scrape the money together by tomorrow night. Can't help that. If you ain't got the money, you've got to go, he repeated roughly. But can't you wait? No, he snarled, and stow it, do. That'll do, Bill Dowsett, said a quiet voice in the back of the crowd, and someone came pushing forward. Joe! Susie sobbed out her relief. All right, old girl. Now, Bill Dowsett, just you put these things where you found them and hurry up. What call of you to interfere? Just this. And he shoved the money under Dowsett's nose. So get busy. Oh, Joe, sobbed Susie, what a mercy you came. He came here while I was out. I mean, skunk growled Joe. Dowsett carried back the last of the things. Oh, Don, mate, there's no call to chuck me names. How was I to know you was to pay the lady's rent? And with a leer, he trundled away his barrow, taking the crowd and the atmosphere of stale beer with him. Susie, I've been paid off. Paid off? Oh, Joe. 
Yes, and I've been looking for a crib for days. Is that why I haven't seen you? But, Joe, what are you going to do? Susie, he said tersely, I've listed. So, this is goodbye, Susie. He kissed her tenderly and pressed something into her hand. That's your share of the king's bounty, he whispered, and releasing her gently, turned and sped down the court. She leaned against the wall, half dazed, watching him till he turned the corner. Then a little hand plucking uneasily at her skirt brought her to a sudden consciousness of her loss, and gathering up little Herbert in her arms, she crushed him to her breast and fled sobbing into the house. Susie, don't take on so, whimpered the little man, stroking her hair. He'll come back to us, sure. But presently the storm of grief abated, and she rose and went over to the dresser that had been so narrowly rescued from the broker's man, and took therefrom a little tin canister. And into it, one by one, she dropped the king's bounty and kissed each piece of silver as it fell. The attack was a complete surprise, and at the first roll of German artillery, the weary troopers sprang from beside their horses where they'd thrown themselves a few hours before to find they were completely outflanked by the enemy. But perfect discipline prevailed. With marvellous swiftness and precision, they harnessed and got under arms. They were a small company of cavalry, about 200 strong, without artillery, only a forward branch of the main body. Amongst them was Joe, the postcard factory packer, but what a different Joe. Weeks of hard training and hard riding had tanned and browned him, and his knees securely gripped his horse's heaving flanks. As in the case of many others of that small company, this was his baptism of fire, but, and his chin squared, he was ready for anything, I deaf itself. The bullets whistled nearer. One man lurched in his saddle and fell. A revulsion of feeling ran through Joe and he gripped his bridle till his knuckles showed white. But a few whispered orders were passed round and the officer in command rose in his stirrups. Now then, he shouted, ready, forward, charge! And with deafening hurrahs and brandishing swords, they thundered after him. Through the German lines they crashed, cutting and hacking their way, each man determined to sell his life dearly in that fight against overwhelming odds, each man vowing to die game. Fast as they mowed the Germans down, others rose in their places, and in the midst of it rode Joe, shouting and slashing, his face set in the warrior's lust. But one by one the officers singled out by the Germans, throwing themselves into the deadliest of the carnage with the impetuous self-devotion of their service, were shot down till only one remained. And with only that handful of brilliant squadron that had galloped through and through those German lines, he turned to them for another charge, the last remaining officer, his head uncovered, his coat torn, his chest bare, his face and hands like theirs black with smoke and powder, waving his dripping sword above his head till the rays of the rising sun caught it afresh. Charge, men, charge, he yelled, and every sabre answered his. Straight over the masses of lifeless forms and almost suffocated with dust and dirt, they galloped. The effect was superb. For a moment the German lines gave way, but closed again, and the cavalry paid the awful toll and fell down black, huddled, stiffened heaps of dead men and beasts. Joe, fighting for his life, was just behind the officer who looked round. Come, lads, he yelled, and as he turned, a German sabre flashed, but as it lunged, Joe almost threw himself from his horse and parried the stroke by sheathing it in his own breast. With a cry of horror and admiration, the officer caught him as he fell and swung him over his saddle, and at that moment came the rattle of distant musketry and the hurrahs of oncoming cavalry as they dashed up and scattered like chaff the German lines. For the first time in what seemed like weeks, Joe opened his conscious eyes to look up from an English four-poster into a pair of familiar blue eyes welling over with tears. A lump rose in his throat, and it seemed ages before he gulped out. Sue! Oh, Joe! and in a moment both her arms were round him. I thought I'd never hear you say it again. But where are we, Sue? he asked as soon as he could speak. Why, we're in Lady Denby's. It was her son you saved, and he had you invalided home here, and she found my address, I really don't know how, and came and brought me and little Herbert here after I had thought I should never see you again, and she sobbed afresh. Don't take on so, Susie. And even though it hurt to move, Joe stroked her hair. 
Before I go back, we'll get spliced this time. Go back. Oh, Joe. Susie, Susie, you wouldn't keep me here when all the other fellows are fighting. But we'll get married, Susie dear. And when I come back... And when you come back, Susie and you will, I hope, never find a truer friend than the mother whose son's life you saved almost at the cost of your own. And from the doorway, Lady Denby smiled at them. Oh, Joe, my hero, sobbed Susie and kissed him again. Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society The Oddfellows. If you've ever wondered what being a member of The Oddfellows means, we're delighted to be able to share some first-hand answers. My name is Karen and I'm from East Grinstead. The best thing about being a member of The Oddfellows is that there's always someone to talk to if you need help and advice, whether it be a member of your local branch or whether it be the Care and Welfare Helpline or the Citizens Advice Price Helpline. You never feel on your own. Hi, I'm Diana from South London. The best part about being an Arts Fellows member is I feel like I have an extended family to talk to and see them almost daily on Zoom. My name is Colin from Blackpool and the best thing about being a member uh, of the Odd Fellows is that I get to meet uh, a, a broader range of people outside my normal social circle. True friendships provide us with memories that we cherish for a lifetime. They help us to grow and become better people. They help us to make a better society. For over 200 years, The Oddfellows has helped its members forge friendships and offered help in times of need. So why not give them a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. Everyone's welcome. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. That was Susie the Flower Girl by Ethel Edwards, which was first published in The People's Friend in January 1915. Uh, joining me to discuss that story is our able narrator, Marion, from the Features team. Hello, Marion. Hi there. We're also joined by David from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, David. Hi there. And Lucy, the fiction editor from The People's Friend. Hello, Lucy. Hello. So, a war story. Probably, if my recollection serves, the first story that we've covered in this podcast that actually includes a description of combat, which I thought was unusual to my mind, because it's not really something that we would typically print in the magazine today. But having had a little read of some of the stories that were published around about this time, it wasn't unusual for the magazine then. Would that be fair to say, David? Yeah, um, I was really intrigued by this story, not so much by its context, but its historical context and where that came in the history of The Friend. Mm-hmm. Um in previous podcasts, we've looked at stories much earlier than this, or even, you know, like two years before this one came out. This is what you're, as you're saying, 1915. So we're eight months into the war or so, give or take. Um, August 20, uh, 1914 was the start of the second, uh, the First World War. Um, but this marks a massive sea change in the way that the People's Friend pitches itself and its content. So while it's been very self-improving and it continues to be self-improving, and very um, family-friendly, family-orientated, um, not so much gender-neutral, but you know, certainly both men and women are reading this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very homely. Very quickly, the friend is not scared to embrace the horror of war and the reality of war and, that, and what that means for its readers. Um, and this comes through both in the fiction and the, the features that appear in the friend at this period. So I was flicking through the volume for 1915 where this story is printed and the war is, you you can't escape it, it's there. So they're really um, not embracing it, that doesn't seem the right word, but they're they're acknowledging it and what it means for the readers. Mm -hmm. Um, And that ranges from both the fiction, which is very much about heroes and people doing their duty, um, through to how people are being supported. 
Um, so you'll see columns about um, what, what people are doing to help the war effort. Women's war work is being discussed, and it's like women writing in and saying, this is what we're doing to help various relief funds. And this is, you know, it's, it's very early in the war. Uh, I mean, obviously, they don't know it's going to last for four years, mm. but, um, you know, it's very early. And that they're thinking about charity and they're thinking it's it's about that rather than the women going into the factories, which I think comes a little bit later. And then even articles about news about the war, what's happening. And the People's Friend as a news vehicle isn't isn't common at this point, I don't think. I don't think it's been like that up to this point. So they're really addressing what's concerning their readers which now are predominantly female because the men have gone away. Yeah. So they're really, you know, they are really thinking about who their readership is and what it is they want. Um, and I know, I know I'm talking a lot here, but it, this just gets me really interested. They did something which I don't think they do now, which they launched in, this, in the January of this year. There was a competition where throughout these issues of the magazine, there are little cutout figures of things like U-boats and uh, dreadnoughts and the Kaiser and soldiers and they've all got little digits next to them so 50 500 so it's almost like points and they're saying you can fight the war at home by cutting these out of the magazine saving them up and then you'll be told to bring them to send them all in and the person with the, who's collected the most points will then receive cash prizes so they're, they're turning war into a they're seeing it as, a, as almost like a competition. Well, not a, that war is a competition, but they've created a competition off the back of the war, mm. which I find fascinating. I do not believe for a moment that they would do this now. And they certainly, I don't think, did it in the Second World War. So obviously, in a social construct, uh, the social time, they're, they're not seeing this as like, they've got nothing to relate to, as to how horrific this war is going to be. Mm. And obviously, we know, we know in retrospect just how horrific the First World War was. Mm. Um, so anyway, so when I saw that, I was quite shocked. You got you got ten thousand points if you found the Kaiser, oh, wow. and and that competition wasn't just in the People's Friend; it was in the People's Journal, My Weekly, and a magazine which we no longer have called the Happy Home. So um, I think it was partly a marketing tool to get people to go out and buy the other magazines and the other newspapers. But also, I think now we would see it as a bit crass. Yes. Massively. Can you can you see my facial expression? <laughs> yes. Okay. I may be the biggest understatement of the podcast so far. <laughs> it's like, um, but I found that just absolutely fascinating. And then there's the story itself, which, you know, is, is what it is. And we'll come on to discuss in a moment, I'm sure. I wonder if that's related to people's incomes, especially women's incomes having dropped during the war you know some sort of enticement to to buy all these um magazines and you know to certainly keep up to date with what was in the magazines yeah there's cash prizes been offered and there's a competition that i've just found which is in the same issue that this story appeared in where you could do like a little word puzzle and there's a chance of winning a hundred pounds that's huge that's a substantial amount of money in 1914 that's, that's something that we noticed very much going through the issues for the various souvenir editions that we've done. Just how much they gave away in competition prizes, not just the financial value, you know, cash prizes, but things like a grand piano at one stage. And they were forever giving hampers away, loads of Christmas hampers during the war period. I've, I've just looked at the, um, for, for that cutout competition that I was looking at, um, that was £120 cash prize. Uh, £50 as, as another prize, um, £30, £20, £10, £5, £3 and £2, um, or a handsome consolation gift of a electro-plated kettle, silver brushes and combs, watches, clocks, cases and teaspoons, etc, etc. So, you know, none of that's particularly, you know, even £2 would have been a nice thing to have at that period. Yeah. That's, that's not a bad set of competition prizes. Yeah. Well, you see the letters in the cookery columns, they're talking about keeping a whole household on 28 shillings a week, just to put it in context. Yeah, just over a, just over a pound, yeah. Yeah. Not even a pound and a half, you know. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that was just fascinating. Yeah, I'm really surprised by that, actually. Obviously, as you were saying, in the sort of social context that this was being published in the war hadn't been going on for very long and at the start of the first world war there was this big kind of jingoistic feeling that um we're gonna go over there and beat them and come home and everything will be fine yeah it'll be over by christmas yeah and they're they're kind of trading on the colonial glories of the british empire and obviously that comes right off the rails as the the war goes on but because this is so early 
it seems they're almost being kind of flippant about it. I wouldn't say it's, it's quite flippant, but it's flippant in retrospect. At the time, I don't think it would have been seen as flippant. Yeah, it wouldn't have been at the time, certainly. Yeah. But um, but it is, as I say, you know, within the space of a year, the friend and, you know, everybody's lives changes dramatically. And you see that through, the, the you know, just comparing 2013 to 20, sorry, 1913 to, um, to, to 1915, it's a dramatic, dramatic change in the, the way that the magazine is working and being put together. Um, more so than 2019 to 2021 in the way that the People's Friends has changed that's yeah. in the pandemic. So, you know. Mm. Very much. I mean, we really noticed that when we were putting together the First World War Collector's Edition because, it, as you say, it was completely dramatic. The way the stories changed, so many more women became protagonists doing really daring things. You know, there were women bus drivers and, and women going to the front being nurses and things like that. It, the tone of the magazine and the stories that it was telling, and in the way that, as you were saying before, Lucy, it was prepared to go into a much darker territories in how it dealt with things. It was realistic. There was still the feel-good. There was still the uplifting endings. But it was prepared to journey with its readers and the amount of suffering that they were going through and reflect their real lives and reflect the lives of the women left behind. I was just going to say that, just in, in relation to this story with them, you know, the content and, you know, not being able to, to pay rent and things. And it it just has such empathy for what so many of the readers, ladies alone with so many men away, would have been going through at that time, severe and really significant financial hardship. And also this realisation that, you know, we are in for the long haul. Mm. Um, it hasn't been over by Christmas. And of course, with them... Um, I'm not quite sure what the production schedule would have been in those days when the January issue would have been printed. Um, but I would imagine it would have possibly been December, in which case I suppose they would have an inkling that indeed this isn't going to be over by Christmas and, and we are going to stand with you all the way and we acknowledge the horrors that are, are going on at the moment and that people are beginning to discuss um, because obviously word's beginning to get back. So I, I feel it's a really good example of the friend having the... the the tone of their story in relation to to what the readers are going through mm. and journeying with them, Marion, as you say. You were speaking to the authors and prospective authors about coronavirus stories and the way in which the magazine wanted to handle them. Uh, we want to handle them in a, in a very specific way because uh, we don't want to overwhelm the readership with all stories that are all about people in lockdown, etc., etc. It seems like here, from what David's saying, the the magazine was all about the war, effectively. Obviously, the, the two events are not directly comparable, but a massive worldwide event that has definitely affected everyone who's reading the magazine. It seems that we have taken a, a very different tack to the way that they approached it in 1914, 1915. Indeed, and I, I think you're right. I think there are Many similarities. I think initially when we were asked to take our laptops home, you know, I remember, I definitely recall a conversation I had with Alan on the fiction team where we, we were questioning whether we'd be at home for two or three weeks. You know, we obviously, none of us had any idea that this was going to go on for as long as it has. Oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> I think the situation's been so fluid all the way through where people have been in lockdown, out of lockdown, different stages of lockdown, that that had a bearing on how we handled it because obviously we wanted to reflect what was happening in wider society, but at the same time remembering that by the time it's gone to press, things could have changed, which indeed did turn out to be the case many times. One thing that I would say is that what became apparent very clearly and very early on was that it's a it's basically a 50-50 split where 50% of our readers literally straight down the line were contacting us saying please don't put anything about coronavirus in, in the issue. This is my bubble, this is my safe place, this is where I feel happy um, and you know, away from the coronavirus, a lot of readers often say to us that the People's Friend, it's such a link to happy times, happy memories, to people that have been loved. And it's it's a, a magazine that many people take to bed at night for, for bedtime reading. So they don't want anything too contentious or uh, too upsetting um, in that setting. Sure. And something that the readers have, had said is, please don't put anything in because, you know, when I'm reading my friend, I'm in a different place, I can forget about it, I can switch the TV off. Especially initially when it was really quite alarming 
um, and people were told to stay at home. However, the other 50% of readers were saying, but you're not reflecting what's happening. Um, why are there no coronavirus stories? So how we how we tried to handle it was when initially when when things began to settle in a little bit, we tried to include stories that did feature coronavirus, but it was the tone that was important. So the actual pandemic itself wasn't the focus. It was how the, the characters in the story related to what was going on around them, the situations they found themselves in. Yeah. Um, and that's where we are today. We do we do feature stories with coronavirus, but not as the main topic. Um, it's I hesitate to say in the background because clearly it's not in the background of anyone's life at the moment, um, and we have yet to see how it pans out. But yeah, it is. It has been a tricky thing to balance, um, not to upset people, but at the same time to reflect what was going on. And I think, as you say, it is interesting to compare um, when we look back on the on the friend in years to come, how we've handled it slightly differently. I think, you know, people are are, are very much in touch with us online through our social media channels, etc. And they let us know what they preferred, what they would prefer, and we've very much been guided by that. Um I think what's important to remember as well is that we've kept going. You know, we had a team meeting this morning, um, just before we came to this podcast and we were just discussing that it's unbelievable that nearly two years have passed with us all working from home in different conditions and likewise for the friend team in 1915 you know against all the odds they kept going they kept putting the magazine out there and it was always there for the readers beside them it was with them it was always on their side and that certainly hasn't changed certainly not so when we're having a look at this story, um, which, by the way, comes with a, a fantastic illustration that I'll put out on our social channels and on our website. It's an illustration of the, the combat that Joe finds himself in. We'll, we'll get to that section of the story, I guess. But the story itself begins as a romance story, a kind of typical romance story between two people that are of not great means. We were talking before we started recording this about how the the way to measure wealth is when you last had a custard pie. That's <laughs> um, what it seems in this story. The descriptions of some of the people are not very polite, shall we say. Um, Susie is a flower girl who um, sells her wares, and on the way home... Uh, it says here, she called out greetings to the groups of slatternly women and ill-favoured men at alley corners as she passed uh, and received their nods of recognition, which seems incredibly uncharitable uh, and, and not particularly um, friend-like. I don't know if this is meant to uh, establish Susie's standing in society, it sounds a bit underbelly-like to me, like uh, and and kind of it sort of fits. It's a, a little bit Dickensian, is what I thought mm. basically, because there's these descriptions, and then there's the guy that comes along to throw her out of her house, um, because she's not paying the rent. It all sounded a little bit uh, like you would see it in a in a Dickens novel. Yeah, I thought that when I read it, actually, parts of this felt quite Dickens in some ways. Nowhere near as well written as Dickens, <laughs> but, um, but some of that. I mean, I think she's. I got the impression that she, they're making her stand out as like this rose, this innocence within, mm-hmm. you know, who's coping with a horrible situation of having been lost her mother and having to look after her young brother, and this like this very virtuous young girl who's in a horrible situation, but is still getting the respect from the slattens and the, the uh, what was it, the, the slattens and the ills. Ill-favoured men, yeah. <laughs> Who sounds like, actually, if anything was to happen to her, they'd probably have her back. You know, yeah. they'd probably look after her eyes, what I kind of felt from that. Um, and, and they compare it to her very much her self-improvement, that she's kind of reading the book she's studying because she wants to get out of the situation that she's in. And she sees that a very people's friend trope you know, about self-improvement and looking after yourself and where you go. Um, so I think it's, it's there to just highlight the contrast, I think, as much as anything else. But it is that kind of slightly Dickensian workhouse, um, ne'er-do-wells, East End London, and with the, and the, constant, top G, the constant dropped Gs off the words as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as far as the writing goes, superbly descriptive, I thought. You know, there's a lot that you could argue about 
in terms of writing style, but we definitely know where we are. We know what these people look like. Um, you're you're right there with them. Um, I thought that was a win for Ethel Edwards. Yeah, her dialogue was the bit that left me down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think so. I think her... Our scene setting was superb. There was one that I liked um, when he describes, well, when she's described, um, when she just walks away from Joe after their kind of um, betrothal with her modish little hat. So she's got some sort of fashion sense, but then um, it's blue cornflowers that almost match to her eyes. It's like, it feels like damn with faint praise. (laughs) (laughs) And she's obviously economical, you know, she's sitting there in her worn serge with its spotless lawn frills at at the wrists. So she keeps herself clean and groomed, even if her stuff's a bit worn out. We're supposed to be sympathetic to her, aren't we? Yeah, definitely. You definitely go on that journey. Although I confess I find it difficult because she's as wet as one of those violets that she's selling in the posies. (laughs) And the slow reveal about Herbert, because at first it's like, oh, who's Herbert? You know, and then, oh. He's the full-on tragic character in some ways. Yeah, he's the tiny Tim. Of yeah, the story. That's, that's <laughs> he is the he is exactly the tiny Tim of the story, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a wonder he's not going. God bless us, everyone. At the yeah. end, <laughs> even some of the names actually, because uh, Bill Dowsett is the name of the guy who comes to check oh, her yes. out, and that that sounds very Dickensian to me. His language as well, so I can't do that, Governor. Yeah, he yeah. should have had he should have had a bull terrier with him, shouldn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, his his accent is really thick. The way it's written, it, it's proper like East End. Yeah. It, yeah, it does feel like something out of Oliver Twist. <laughs> mm. Oh my gosh, Susie's a virtuous Nancy. There we are. We've cracked it. <laughs> <laughs> so this base, this whole thing is just basically plagiarism. So we can put it away now. <laughs> <laughs> with apologies to the estate of Ethel Edwards. <laughs> I thought in some ways it veered between two different things. I mean, I know it's subtitled A Romance of the War, but it was very much a romance and then it also was very much about the war. Um, And you wonder if the brief perhaps from the fiction editor of those days or from the editor indeed would be, you know, we, we want to appeal to women, we want to feature our sort of stock and trade romances, but we also need to include the war. I suppose as the war, as as we were discussing earlier, as the it became apparent that the war was here for the long haul, I suppose the these things merged and the stories themselves changed. Mm-hmm. And at pre-war pre-war betrothals before going off to the front or signing up were not massively uncommon. I mean, the difference here, as I suppose that they're betrothed and then the war comes along and he goes away, rather than it was like, well, I'm off to war now, so let's get hitched before we go. Mm. Um, but I just wondered whether the fact that they set it in this very much poverty, working class, flower girl setting would chime with the readers, but they might be having a hard time, but this person's having an even harder time, mm. if you see what I mean. Um, and whether that's part of the, the scene setting that's gone on here. So um, and it makes the, the, that romance element of it in, the, in the, the non-romantic sense, in the non-love sense, that kind of more kind of a 19th century romance of fantasy of, oh, it'll all be great and I'll end up in a big house. <laughs> you know, um, you know, everything will work out in the end. I wonder if there isn't a touch of the Eliza Doolittles about this as well, because Pygmalion came out in 1913. Mm. So it's possible that people would have been familiar with the character of Eliza and maybe ascribe some of Eliza's character to Susie. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you kind of got the, the flower girl bettering herself and popular where she lives and going into a new environment and everything. But with slightly less exploitation, yeah. And slightly less exploitation. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting, though, isn't it, how we read it and how we perceive all the characters and all the action and then to sort of compare and contrast that with how it would have been read by the majority of readers so long ago and mm. in completely different social circumstances. Just one point I was going to make was that um, I thought there was an interesting sort of patriotic element at the end when he has been injured, when Joe has been injured and he says that he will he fully intends to go back to the front. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this story, he says, but you wouldn't keep me here when all the other fellows are fighting. There is that element starting to creep in as well, you know, of um, I fully intend to fight for my country. And I think it's it's quite an interesting point that's been made there. I think that's the theme for a lot of the, you know, Susie as well, his character, character as well as Joe's. It's all about duty, responsibilities. Mm. Exactly. And that comes before personal happiness. 
what I liked about that though is that um, Joe doesn't enlist out of patriotic duty. Joe gets paid off. That's right. And then, so he loses his job, and then he enlists for which he gets the king's bounty, mm. part of which he uses to pay off um, the the lassie's debts. But it's it, in the early bits of the story, it's never really said that he has this big swell of patriotism and he wants to go off and fight. He just, he loses his job, and then presumably, like many men of his means at the time, he thought, well. I can enlist and I'll get paid. And then obviously after the combat happens, his point of view has changed mm. and he he comes round to that way of thinking that there are still people over there fighting and I want to be playing my part kind of thing. I think she she heralds that, doesn't she, when she talks about him going over there and how it's a different Joe that we see on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. So it it's almost as if his character has completely changed through the, the training he's been with and the, the the comradeship with the people that he's fighting alongside. But it almost feels like two stories to me. It almost feels like Joe's story and Susie's story. And they're not quite the same. The The tone is very different. Those battle scenes, they're really quite exciting. You know, the way that she's written it, all those short phrases, you can feel the horses sort of drumming down the field and all the excitement and the, the danger and the, the fear and everything. It, it's totally different from what we see of Susie trying to sell her flowers in the rain. Yeah, the the as you described her being a bit wet earlier. Um, the, there is nothing that you can see in the descriptions of the combat of that kind of language, or you know, the descriptions are all different. Uh, it's all very active. It's all very well. It's quite violent. It's very. I almost felt like it was a man writing it. I'm I'm not sure I believe in Ethel. I almost felt like there was two authors. It just struck me as such a, a change of pace and such a change of style. And even when you see it in the printed version, when her story finishes and it goes to the battle scene, it's, it's actually segregated on the page. There's, a, there's, there's a, a line of asterisks that separates off that battle scene. And then at the end of the battle, you get asterisks again. So it does almost feel like a separate chapter. Um, so they've even put that in there so, to kind of highlight it out. It felt like a more to me as if it was a serial instalment so where you would have different people's viewpoints um, and I wondered when I was reading it if it was you know relevant to where the people's friend was at that time just as we've been discussing sort of going from a family publication that was aimed at, at men and women to a predominantly women's interest magazine um, because certainly it seemed to be two di- very different viewpoints there and completely different styles as you say. Yeah but it's not done in a way that um, feels gratuitous the language isn't about the horror of the war. It's about almost like the positivity of our troops. Mm. You know, so they talk about things like um, the impetuous self-devotion of their service. Um, you know, the, the, it, it's done in a very much like our boys are doing really well. And yes, there's casualties, but they are being brave and heroic um, rather than, you know, lambs to the slaughter. Uh, and that just struck me as a, as a very different tone. But they kind of preambled some of his... Um, when he, you know, he he bailed out. He 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 didn't have to give her the money for that house. He could have just said, "Well, I'm off. I've signed up. You're on your own now, love. See you later. Bye." Yeah. <laughs> you know, he he gave her, you know, a, a good chunk of money. Um, I don't know. Maybe if he might have been sued if they'd broken off the engagement. Sorry, that's a previous <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it sounds like that might be a thing. Get rich quick scheme. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, the language again—it's very—it's very descriptive language and it's very brutal language, but it's not gratuitous. Mm-hmm. So you know, cutting and hacking their way, which I suppose is quite gratuitous. But um, <laughs> you know, it's not done for titillation; it's done for sense of sense of place and time. It's to—it's to put you there in the middle of the danger with yeah. him, isn't it? Yeah. So I actually thought that was a really good bit of writing. I did too. And the rest of it left me a bit. Ugh. <laughs> which is why I almost felt like it was a different writer. Uh-huh. I don't want to impugn the reputation of Ethel Edwards, but is it possible that she submitted a story and someone from the writing staff of The People's Friend thought, we need a description of what's going on here with Joe, so we better put one in? That That's that's an extensive bit of writing, so that's not a thing that we would do in the magazine today. Uh, we We would presumably go back to the author and ask them to make changes if we wanted them made but do you think that's possible that someone else has written that and inserted it into the story 
Or is that just being cynical? I wish we had the editorial records for this period. Oh, wouldn't it be good? I really wish we had the correspondence to see how this was being managed. I could almost imagine them going back and, you know, Lucy, this is probably more you than me, um, going back and making suggestions to how the story could be stronger if that bit was rewritten. Because it could have been quite a prosaic thing. Because they need to get to the they need to get to the the third part of the story where he's recovering and mm-hmm. talking about going back. So it does. I, I wonder if someone's gone back and said, "Yeah, can you change that?" I do agree, but I just feel that you know, as we've said, I think the t- the two styles seem completely contrasting. Indeed. They're so different. It does seem like two different authors to me. I wonder. I mean, we know that NES Swan was married to a captain in the army. So I wonder if it wasn't somebody who was married to somebody who'd seen service and said, can you give me an idea of what it was like to actually go into battle? Well, the editorial team of this would have been predominantly male, but they would presumably too old to enlist, but they probably, well, they would have known the Boer War Mm -hmm. and the news around the Boer War, which is what this felt like a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it didn't feel like the First World War, did it? No, it felt a bit more Boer War-ish to me. More Crimean. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. No, so those wars um, would have been more in the memory, mm. and rather because at this point, you know, the news coming back is very censored from the front. Yeah. So it's all positive news that's been going out in the newspapers. For example, you only really start to get the real horror of the First World War when the casualties start coming back and their stories start getting reported in the newspapers and elsewhere. And they can't, you know, the censors can't hide the fact that you know your son has come back and he's missing a leg. Mm. And I, and part of me wonders. You know, whether this is taken almost from somewhere else. It does have that feel to it. But, I mean, you, you'd need a, a World War One historian to really kind of comment on that, which is certainly not what I am. <laughs> I want to talk about the physics of one bit in this description, because I'm pretty sure it's impossible. <laughs> and I'd like, your, I'd like your thoughts on it. So, Joe is in the cavalry charge, and he's behind the only surviving officer who's leading them on. And the, the lines go... Come, lads, he yelled, and as he turned, a German sabre flashed, but as it lunged, Joe almost threw himself from his horse and parried the stroke by sheathing it in his own breast. With a cry of horror and admiration, the officer caught him as he fell and swung him over his saddle, and at that moment came the rattle of distant musketry, etc., etc. So, in one move, we are to believe that Joe threw himself from his horse was stabbed by a German guy on the way down, presumably, uh, and then caught by another bloke on a horse who then throws him over the horse and they they ride off into the sunset. I feel as though that is physically impossible. I'm okay with that because I, I had it in my head as Joe's riding almost alongside the guy who is the target for this German sabre and he's leaping across his captain gets in the way of the sabre and then it's just sort of a small matter for the captain to grab him as he's going over his horse's saddle to the ground and stop that trajectory i thought it added to the claustrophobia of battle Mm. and that kind of real sense of everything's kind of on top of each other Mm -hmm. so I i was willing to kind of let that one go but the thought of three horses being that close and still being able to do all of that i can understand where you're coming from ian in my head i've got two horses going in the same direction and the german one coming in the opposite direction if you see what i mean but it's not comfy for the horses yeah i was okay with that i thought it it did add to the excitement. I, I think if you're if you're reading this, you know, in 1915, and you have no idea as yet what the the battle is is going to be like, or or how the war's panning out. Um, the way it is written in this section is it, certainly very exciting, and you do get a sense of how it might have felt. Oh, definitely. The description of it is vivid. Um, I just read that bit and thought, who's leaping where, and how. <laughs> I mean, I know he's just learned to ride, but is he also like a a long jumper? Are you reading it cinematically, basically, which is, I suppose, an experience that the people reading this at the time wouldn't have had? So you're thinking, how would you stage that? (laughs) (laughs) The amateur film director in me says that's not happening. Yeah, whereas the people reading this at the time wouldn't have, you know, they'd have read adventure stories, but they wouldn't have seen video footage of battle. So it really is reported. Um, so maybe you can have a little bit of artistic license, whereas we've seen far too many westerns and war movies to, to necessarily give it as much credibility as maybe it would have been given at the time. Yeah, it was the point that Lucy had made previously about the difference between us reading it a hundred years after the fact mm. and someone reading it at the time who hasn't seen Zulu. 
as many times as I have. <laughs> so obviously after the combat, there's then the the resolution where the, the cliffhanger of Joe's fate is resolved and they are saved by a, a lovely rich lady, which is nice. I'm waiting for a rich lady to come and save me. It has not happened yet. <laughs> I think it was her son who had been saved yeah. by Joe's, Joe's action. That's right. She was the mother of the officer that he saved with his gravity-defying escapade. How on earth did she find Susie? Because Joe's unconscious. There was a note in his pocket with her address. Ah. <laughs> so, you know, not massive unusual for warriors to take their sweetheart's notes into battle with them in their breast pocket. It doesn't actually say, because it, it kind of just breezes over it. Um, Susie is telling him the story, and she says, Why, we're in Lady Denby's. It was her son you saved, and he had you invalided home here, and she found my address. I really don't know how. That's a bit of a cop-out. <laughs> All right. I got a bit about the address. But factually, not massive as unusual, a lot of big houses turned into um, recovery hospitals, yeah. hospitals for um, the war injured coming back. It's not quite Downton Abbey, but it's, um, you know, it's not a bad way to wake up in a four-poster bed. <laughs> it's quite interesting that he's presented as the hero of the piece on both counts, the home front and, as it were, and also the war front. It's true. He's a, he's a virtuous person beforehand, mm. and then he, he turns into a, a war hero towards the end. And Susie is lifted out of poverty by, presumably, it was, that's the, the hint that's given, is that she's, that she's lifted up by Lady Denby. Mm. Well, you know, she's got this new friend who will not see her live in poverty. Rescued by her knight on horseback and his patron. Ah, there's this story as a medieval romance. <laughs> it is now. I'm glad for Herbert. He'll get more custard pies. <laughs> He'll get all the custard pies he wants. <laughs> it's what it's all about, though, isn't it, then, as now, the characters. Do you care what happens to them? Does their predicament impact you enough that you want to read on? Um, these things haven't changed at all. You know, if you don't find the protagonist interesting or or someone that you can relate to or engaging, you're not going to read on. But you want to know, it's all going to be well? What's going to happen to Joe? In that regard, it's well written. Does Herbert turn up in the last section? I don't think he does, does he? He doesn't get a mention, I'm sorry to say, but I think we can safely assume that... He's in the kitchen eating pies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't see his reaction, but we do know he's there because Lady yeah. Denby brought Susie and little Herbert here. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. He's somewhere down the kitchens, isn't he, Lucy? I think so. But I think you're right, though. So like that, 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 yeah, it's, the, the characters are relatable to the readership of the time. And so it's, it's, it's very current. I don't always necessarily associate the people's friend and topicality. Mm -hmm. And that's not a criticism. It's not as immediate as to what's necessarily what's going on. And this feels very immediate to me very early on. You know, and it'd be interesting to see if Ethel wrote any more stories like that i i did some digging around i can't find out anything about ethel i couldn't find any more contributions to the friends she she didn't um contribute any serials serial stories mm -hmm. so she might have done further short stories but we don't have any indexes for the short stories unfortunately so um i did some googling around to see if i could find her mentioned as writing short stories anywhere else and found nothing i was going through indexes this morning in the archives trying to find her and hoping that she would turn up and it's like Nothing. So I believe that she, I, I, I think that she probably was a real person and a real contributor. But mm -hmm. um, and while the story has got lots of merits, I suspect that she wasn't tapped on to be invited to write a serial story. Um, there is a new section to the podcast. We've been giving the stories ratings. I've been asking all the guests on the podcast to rate the stories out of 10. David when we were joined by Barry in a previous uh, episode, he was very sceptical about the rating system because it's incredibly arbitrary and <laughs> doesn't take into account all the different parts of the story. So just to let you know in advance, I've had that lecture. <laughs> yeah, okay. And in case you're, you're aiming to give me a reprise. Um, so what I've been asking people to do is to rate the stories out of 10 and the purpose behind this is we will open these ratings up to the listeners as well and we will add the scores together and the winning story will be printed in the magazine, um, or reprinted in the magazine next year when the um, 
season, this season of reading between the lines comes to an end. Oh, that's too much pressure. Oh, that's quite a lot of pressure. And I'd like it if you took it more seriously than Barry took it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say. I mean, I just, I got, I got a very, I got quite a flippant vibe from him. Um, <laughs> I will go and have words. <laughs> uh, so, off the top of my head, I can't recall the the scores that we've given stories so far. But to give you an impression, we've so far had a story by Annie S. Swan. Um, and we've had a story by A.P. McDonald that we're big fans of here on the podcast as well. Uh, those were in the region of seven and a half to eight and a half out of ten. Mm. So I will ask you to now consider the story that we've just read, Susie the Flower Girl by Ethel Edwards, and give me a rating. You can feel free to give me an explanation as to why and don't just bark numbers at me. So we'll we'll start. David, with you, what do you think? Ooh, as a historical artifact, I would probably give it an eight or a nine. But because of the clunky dialogue, (laughs) and even with the saving grace of the battle scene, I think I've got to give it a five or a six because it's just, ugh. (laughs) It's almost a bit too written by numbers in some ways for me. Okay. So I'm going to sit on five, which feels harsh. But as a historical item, I would give it more but that's not what we're scoring it on. <laughs> okay, five. Um, Marion, what do you think? Oh, that's so difficult because without having read all the other stories in the selection, really hard to make a comparison. Just looking at this... Do you want to go away and listen to the other episodes of the podcast? I can't believe you haven't done that already. Oh, yeah, why not? <laughs> Even the ones you've not recorded yet. <laughs> Especially those ones. <laughs> because it feels like two stories and... Thinking about the readers of the future, would it be a nice read for readers today? Like David, I think it's really interesting historically. There are bits of it that are excellent, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to give it a four. Oh, oh, that's a harsh crowd today. No pressure, Lucy. (laughs) Lucy, what do you think? Are half points an option? Half points are an option. I'm going to say six and a half. And the reason is that I agree with everything that's been said in that in terms of historical document, in terms of being very of the time, um, that's one thing. But it does feel like it's been written by two separate authors. It definitely feels that it's been written and then a chunk has been added mm-hmm. or at least substantially altered. Um, I do feel that there's a lot to say in its favour. I do feel it's it's descriptively written. I feel that the setting's good. I'm, but I'm going to say six and a half. And I think that's quite generous. It's certainly generous compared to your colleagues here who just <laughs> given this story a relentless shooing. I think something that um, the that fiction editor Shirley always said is that a good story can be transposed from any historical era and still be a good story. And I think you would have to question whether that's the case here. But I think it's a, a really good point that she made um, a, a good story is a good story regardless of the setting and the time what a nice positive note to end the episode on um, and end it we will so it just remains for me to say thank you to Marion for her able narration thank you to Lucy and David for joining us for the discussion and thank you for listening and until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story from the friend to you cheerio Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story, and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We would be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £6, and that special offer is available until May 31st, 2022. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Hasty back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. 
It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend. That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure. The friend to friends in trouble recommend. They won't be happy till they get the 